Welcome to The Wizardist Podcast. I'm Paul Canetti. This is episode 11. Today on the podcast, I am very excited to have Angela Lee. Angela is an educator and entrepreneur. She's the Chief Innovation Officer and Associate Dean at Columbia Business School, where I also teach. Um, Angela teaches courses there herself in strategy, leadership, entrepreneurship, Uh, And as if that's not enough, she is also the founder of 37 Angels, an angel network um, that invests in early stage startups, and I'm very proud to say is an investor in Maz. And uh, she runs these investing boot camps to try to onboard uh, new women angel investors. And so uh, if you're interested in investing, there's actually a boot camp coming up um, at the beginning of next year. You can check out 37angels.com slash online. That's 37angels.com slash online. Uh, It's pretty incredible. Basically, uh, you learn the ropes of what it takes to uh, become an angel investor, startup investor, and then you can invest as part of this network of amazing women that make up 37 Angels. Angela is often um, like a guest expert on TV, uh, Bloomberg TV, CNBC, Fox Business. I've also seen her featured on Forbes, HuffPo, Fast Company. So I'm really lucky that I got her to sit down with me here uh, at The Wizardist. She was on Entrepreneur Magazine's list of six innovative women to watch in 2015. And this year, Inc.com listed her as one of uh, 17 inspiring women to watch. Um which is totally crazy. It's not like a hundred or a thousand women to watch. It's like six and she's one of them. So it was really awesome to learn about Angela's story. Um, She has a history of entrepreneurship. She's founded, uh, I think, four different companies. Uh, And then she got into the investing side and realized that she really didn't have any good resources to learn how to be an investor. And uh, as a natural educator, she set out to do that. I, of course, am not an investor, and so it was really eye-opening just to learn about what it really takes to be an angel investor and to understand things from the other side, Uh, especially poignant for me as I was talking to one of my own investors, Um, and so to really understand that from the other side of the table. Okay, so please enjoy Angela Lee founder of 37 Angels and Chief Innovation Officer and Associate Dean at Columbia Business School. Welcome to our little podcast studio here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, in the heart of the Maz offices. Um, you used to live right around here, right? I used to live half a block away, and so I'm very excited to come back to my old hood. It's a good hood. Half a block away, I mainly think of Chipotle. Did you eat Chipotle a lot when you were in, in the neighborhood? I did not eat Chipotle <laughs> because I'm from California, oh. and the Mexican food in New York kind of offends me mm. a little bit, and so no, not so much. Do you just like avoid Mexican altogether? Pretty much. Yeah. And then I gorge when I go to California. Yeah, that makes sense. That's like, um, I went to Japan a couple of years ago and I didn't eat sushi in New York for like a year. Pretty much. And you just be like become a snob because you've, you've tasted it. And you become that annoying person. Oh, this isn't how they do it in Tokyo. Yeah, exactly. 
That's like those friends that get back from studying abroad and they're like, well, in Paris. And I'm like, Stop, do not say it like that. Like, you're here now. Um, like Barcelona. Uh, I had a lot of friends like that. Um, so how long have you been in New York? Well, it's funny. I still say that I'm from California, but I've been here for 12 years. So I think I unfortunately have to say that I'm a New Yorker at this point. I shouldn't say unfortunately, but I am a California girl at heart. I think you can be a New Yorker and also be from California. Fair enough. Which is, I guess, accurate in this case. Um, do you imagine yourself ending up back in your homeland at some point? I no longer pretend to have any idea what I'm going to be doing, <laughs> I would say, two years from now. It's about how far out I look. The, uh, the last time I saw you, you said something to me like, I'm trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Absolutely. I think all of us are. But I... The great thing about working at a school and working with students who are constantly asking themselves that question is I get to ask myself that question all the time as well. And people are always shocked when I'm like, I have no idea. And I think it's okay. Yeah, I found that like very empowering, you know, because I feel like I feel that way all the time, but like I'm sort of afraid to say it. You know? Well, I think all that happens as you get older is you get more comfortable with the fact that no one has any idea what they're doing. Um, and when you're younger, you're a little bit more pretending like you know, but I now know none of us have any idea. Well, I think part of it is also that when you're younger, you truly imagine that older people do know what they're doing. But I keep passing the age of people that I previously thought knew what they were doing and I still don't know what I'm doing. And so I've come to accept that probably if I look ahead, those people also don't know what they're doing. All the way up the line. So this will give you a little bit of insight into me, which is I have an Excel spreadsheet dating back to, I think, when I was 16 of all of my New Year's resolutions. And I have a success rate on my New Year's resolutions. (laughs) And I have a life plan that I wrote and iterated every year for about a decade. And at about, I want to say, maybe like my, was it 29 or 31, where I just gave up because I realized none of it made any sense. Um, and none of it was coming to fruition necessarily. And uh, but that just gives you a little bit of insight into the type of planner that I yes, was. Yes, that must be. I mean, it's I fun admire to read now. <laughs> your use of spreadsheets because I try to incorporate a spreadsheet into anything that I do. But that seems like really intense. I had pivot tables on my wedding guest list. It was really <laughs> useful. It is useful. <laughs> it's, it's a useful very useful way to tool. organize. Um, so that's interesting, though, because of course planning one's life is fairly unpredictable and hard to do. Um, but you still try to set some sort of, you know, goals or, or guideposts or milestones that you're trying to hit in your career or in your personal life or whatever it is, which isn't that dissimilar, I think, from the types of goals that you have when founding a company or something. But do you take the same approach on the company side, both in, in ventures that, that you've done, but also like in the companies you work with, do you sort of embrace this like, hey, anything could happen mentality? Or do you try to encourage people to be more structured and spreadsheety? It's a little bit of both. So I'll, I'll first start kind of me as a founder. And so what I like to do is have those quarterly or year milestones around big metrics, right? You know, revenue, employees, sales, all those things that you would expect. But I think in terms of the how, that's where I think experimentation is both allowed and and very much encouraged. And I think you get a a period of time, let's just throw spaghetti at a wall and then regroup. And I think the rigor that comes in is, again, setting that high level, what does success look like? But then also saying, okay, and now we're going to measure it and actually take the time to reflect. I think where you get in trouble is where you're just experimenting and running around and then 
six months later when someone asks you about your metrics or your churn or your net promoter score, you have no idea. That's right. when I think you get in trouble. Right. You're not even tracking that stuff. Right. And then there's another sort of um, thing that I know we've been struggling with, which is when you are succeeding, but you still don't give yourself the time to reflect, then there's no like red flags like, oh my God, everything's going terribly. We should probably reevaluate. Um, I think it's even harder when things are going and you are super busy and, you know, the charts are going up and to the right to still force yourself to sort of reflect and take inventory and see, is this still in line with those original goals? Are those original goals, do those even make sense anymore within the context of what we know now? All those sorts of things. Absolutely. And it doesn't, it doesn't always have to be like a catastrophic thing either. So 37 Angels has been around for just over four years now. And if you'd asked me three months ago where our customers came from, I would have told you all of our wonderful email marketing. And then I had one of our wonderful interns do a little bit of an analysis and found out that 75% of our um, aspiring angels come from referrals, which is a wonderful metric to have. It's great. I had no idea. Like, and that's not, so I think it doesn't always have to be like a catastrophic thing, but it was like a really embarrassing moment for me that I wasn't tracking my own metrics. Yeah. Um, and it's, it was such a useful number to know. And I'm like, that's just, that was a one hour analysis. Where, where else can we be doing this? And I, I did realize that it's, what is it? The cobbler's shoes have no, cobbler's children have no shoes. Yeah, yeah. It was very much one of those moments where I talk about this stuff all the time with the startups that I work with, but then um, wasn't applying it to my own startup. Uh, it's, it's, that's like a really common phenomenon, I yeah. think, you know, especially um, when things are going well. Yeah, that's right. Because you don't stop necessarily to say like, hey, how come there are no leads? Right. And then that would sort of exactly. know, prompt that sort of investigation. But I find data in general, this will sound silly, but like it's just so awesome. Agreed. Because <laughs> that's because, how I feel, too. <laughs> yeah, because well, I, I could tell from from the spreadsheets. But but right. It's like I feel like we base so much on just anecdotal mm-hmm. assumptions it sure seems like the emails are working. Uh, are working. I was I was combining working, marketing like and working. <laughs> they are working. Um, but then it's like, well, why don't we just actually find out instead of speculating at all? Exactly. Because there's so many things you have to speculate about. It's like the things that there are real, tangible data points about. You might as well take advantage. You know, there's always going to be the other variables that are much harder to track. Exactly. Um, so I wanted talk a little bit about all the different things you've done and are doing. Um, you seem to be sort of a, a renaissance woman in in the best possible way. I like uh, that, how that's the new term for you have ADD and why can't you figure out what <laughs> well, you want to do, which is what I got told in my 20s. <laughs> I have it too. Um, and, and yeah, I, I mean, a question I get a lot, so I'll ask it to you um, because I don't like when people ask me. Great. Uh, Looking is, forward to the question. <laughs> is How do you have time to do all this stuff? Like, and, and for our listeners, like what, what is all this stuff? Like, what are the things you're currently involved in? And then this, the follow-up is how do you manage to do all that? Okay. So I'll start with kind of the main hats that I wear. So there's, um, I guess three hats that I wear. One is I teach. So I teach at several schools. I primarily teach strategy, leadership, and innovation courses. Um, and then at Columbia Business School, I am the chief innovation office there, officer there and the associate dean for teaching. So I'm responsible for kind of teaching excellence and then also online learning for the school. And then when I'm not teaching or at Columbia, I run 37 Angels, which is an angel network where we invest in early stage startups and we also teach women specifically how to angel invest. 
And then your second question was, how does one do all of that? So I'll kind of give you some high overarching themes and then some more kind of tactical things because I always love those. Um, So one is really, really phenomenal teams, right? So I just have amazing people working with me um, in all those different endeavors and um, a kind of a rule of thumb that I heard once is if if someone else can do it 70% as well as you can, delegate it. And that's hard. I'm a bit of a control freak. Um, And so that's hard. And for me, that bar is like 95%. And over time, I think I'm at like 80% and then I'll delegate it. Um, Or said another way, you know, unless I'm awesome at doing this, I shouldn't be doing it and someone else should be doing it. So I think that's a huge one. Um, the other one is just being really clear about what you're saying yes to and what you're saying no to. So I'm sure a lot of folks have heard about Stephen Covey's kind of time management matrix, right? There's urgent and um, important. And most of us always do the urgent stuff. But what we always miss is what I call quadrant two activities, which is really important but not urgent, right? Those are things like going to the dentist. Those are things like going on dates with your significant other, calling your parents at home you love them. And so really making time for those quadrant two activities. And that way, if you know what you're saying yes to, it's much easier than to say no to the things yeah. that are much less essential. Uh, read Essentialism, read Stephen Covey's uh, Seven Habits, I'm sure I have. And then uh, David Allen's Getting Things Done. Those are probably my three favorite books around that space. Um, and then a couple of really tactical things. Google canned responses save me probably... 50 hours a year. Really? They're amazing. Um, What's the, give us an example of a canned response. So I get asked, okay, one that I use five times a day is, hey, I want to put time on your calendar. And my response is, I would love that. The best way to do that is to schedule time through Calendly, which, by the way, is another tool that I love. There are many, many kind of calendar scheduling things. I happen to use Calendly, but my Google can response means that I can do one click and it sends that email because I write that email five, 10, 20 times a day. That's one. Another one is how to get to my office at Columbia, which is a little bit hard to find. Same thing, as opposed to copy, cutting, and pasting that from some other document, which I was doing, two clicks, Google can response, it's inserted. So that's a very tactical one. Um, I'm sure I have others that I will think of. That's cool. Yeah, so it's not necessarily the very first reply where someone thinks like, oh, like she just like copy and paste it, but as when you're far enough in the thread that it becomes like highly action oriented. You just sort of kick it into one of these like funnels, like one of these modes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. I've been using this um, a scheduling service, Clara, and it's it's like you CC Clara, and she just sort of takes over the thread and figures out the scheduling. It's like an AI. I call hmm. it AI-ish okay. service because um, there is a real human component, but a lot of it's automated, um, and so. I have the setting that she BCCs me. So on her very first reply, it'll be like, hey, Angela, like I'd love to get some time in the calendar with you and Paul. So I see that email come in, but I'm BCC'd. And then the whole rest of the thread, I don't even know about, Hmm. um, which is kind of crazy. And so there could be another five emails there that like aren't in my inbox, Um, which again, a lot of these calendar services, like where you choose a time on a, Mm -hmm. or like Doodle or some of these other ones. Yeah. so a lot of sort of productivity hacking. A I, lot of I guess. yeah. I'm I'm a bit of a efficiency junkie, um, and love all that stuff. Um, what about just like mentally or physically or emotionally? Like yeah. you know, it's not necessarily the nuts and bolts of it, but how do you sort of switch modes on any given day? Sort of where is your brain power going? How do you sort of you know prioritize and 
all that stuff. Yeah, so I I don't have anything particularly innovative. I think like all of us, I have about 81 different um, to-do lists of, and I literally write everything down that I think of. And so um, Paul, I know you teach as well, so I'm sure you do this as well. I teach the same class every fall called The Leader's Voice, which is on leadership communications. And I was just looking at that course to refresh it for the fall as I do every summer. And I had 13 pages of ideas that I collected in the last year about things that I wanted to do to that course. And so I am not afraid of writing everything down. However, this morning when I looked at that list, I said, okay, I'm going to do, I chose about six of them to actually do for the fall. So right, I write everything down. And what will happen is over the course of a year, the same thing will get written down four times. Yes. Like, you know what, then I'm really going to do a learning diary this fall. That, and I'm saying that out loud because I'm right. committed to doing a learning diary for my students. And so I think really, really being precise about what actually makes it into my to-do list, I the folks listening can't see my planner, but I have a very small to-do list at the front of my planner, which is what are the five or six things I'm going to do a day? And then I schedule it. And I know myself very, very well that I can only do like creative work for, you know, three hours and it has to be in the morning. And so I block it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wish I could say something more like illuminating, but that really is how I manage it. And then the last thing I'll say is sleep. Um, I am in bed every night at 9.15, which shocks everybody. Wow. Um, what time do you I'm get in, up in the morning? Like 5.36. I mean, I get eight hours of sleep. Wow. Um, and I'm an old lady. You got a um, real jump on the day. I do. Yeah. I love it. And I, I love New York early in the morning and everything. And so uh, sleep is so, so, so important. Wow. I agree about the duration of sleep, but like I'm lucky if I've eaten dinner by 9.15. Yeah, everyone makes fun of me. Um, and I, I mean, my husband and I have dinner at like 5.30 and it's us and like young parents I'm and taking really you right into old dinner time people. Right now. I, yeah, this is, this is like, <laughs> we're having dinner at 6.30 and I mean, we're like, okay, that's a late dinner for us. Right. That's amazing. But you know what? It's, it's about finding something that works, yeah. right? And, and I think a lot of people do read these sort of, you know, 10 morning rituals that the top executives have or, you know, these sorts yeah. of like random posts. And it's like, sure, if you are the type of person that loves to pop out of bed and do yoga, then right. this is a perfect plan for you. But like, it's more about finding something that sort of, I, I always call it going with the grain. Yeah. It takes a lot of energy to do anything that is against your nature. That's true. And, and we have to do things like that all the time, which is fine. But wherever possible, I try to align the way that I live my life with the grain because it's like silly to waste energy in the areas that are, that are, are just going against the grain for the sake of it. Absolutely. You know, like you're staying up late even though you're not a night person. Right. You're getting up early even though you're not an early person or whatever. You know, to that end, I've already, you know, outed myself as a big nerd on this, on, on this. Um, but I also have like a reflection journal and I, when I do stuff, I write down like how much joy it gives me. And so little things like I realized after looking at data for over the course of about a year and a half, I don't like judging startup pitches, right? Huh. So I love doing a workshop on how to pitch, or I love doing a workshop on how to acquire customers, But and I'm okay at judging, but I actually find it really stressful because I think I have to be like funny, and I think that I have to be maybe even a little snarky, or like there's, there's mm. like an entertainment value for the audience, right. for the judges to ask like really like great questions, and I don't like it. Yeah. But I didn't know that until I realized after like six different judging events that that didn't bring me joy and so i also try to only do things that like i really love doing that's amazing that that i mean essentially by documenting these things or like you were saying writing down ideas you have even if you look at them later it's essentially collecting data for yourself right like i do the same thing i have um we a few months ago we switched over to asana which is this Mm -hmm. like task management tool but i have my own like to-do list 
in Asana. I, I've struggled with to-do lists. I write on to-do lists all the time and then I never check the list. Right. Um, but I've been pretty good with this one. But every once in a while, I sort of go through and try to like reconcile my list basically. Yeah. And it's the thing. I'll see, and they can be days or weeks apart. I'm just saying the same thing over and over again. And I'm like, okay, like this is obviously something that needs attention. Or more commonly, by the time I get back to the list, it's something I've already done. Or it doesn't matter anymore. But, and that is great. amazing yeah. too, isn't it? When it's like, oh yeah, this just doesn't apply. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's the same thing as far as as sort of keeping track of your thoughts as they come. Um, and then every once in a while taking inventory. So this is interesting that you don't like to judge startups because I would imagine as an investor, basically the job is judge startups. I mean, whether or not in a public setting or not like you know the process is essentially to evaluate whether a startup is worth investing in or not but you're sort of like a meta investor i mean you are an investor but also in the sense that you are educating people about how to judge startups which seems to be really where your passion is um, maybe even more so and so how do you how do you do that how do you teach someone like i i think i'd be a terrible investor because I feel like I'd say no to everybody because it seems so easy to think of all the millions of reasons why it wouldn't work. Um, and even if the founder has good responses to those objections, it feels like you could just come up with 10 more. So, you know, how do you end up making any investments at all? Yeah. Um, so many things that I want to say. So the first thing I'll say is in terms of saying no, I think people, when they think about investing in startups, they think about it's like really exciting or it's like Shark Tank. And what they don't realize is that it is saying no most of the times, right? So 37 Angels sees about 2,000 startups a year, and we only invest in 10 to 12. That is wow. a whole heck of a lot of no's. And it is not super fun to sit in a room with, you know, 10 startups and to say no, 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 10 times in a row. And a lot of days for me are like that. And I don't like those days. Um, And I am an investor because I love to help founders. So for me, the fun begins begins once we've invested and I get to start to help. Or if I'm on a call and maybe it's a no, but I can make three great introductions or I can say, hey, this is how you should think about your business model. That's what I love about investing and working with startups. The actual like filtering and that, I, that is not what I enjoy right. about um, being an investor. But in terms of teaching it, um, I think, first of all, it is not for everybody. Investing in startups is definitely not for everybody. Just from a risk po- profile perspective, not everyone has the time. Um, and some people probably should be investing in later stage stuff, right? When there is a little bit more data, because this is such a leap of faith early on um, that you just kind of have to it's a lot like dating, right? Mm. Like, how do any of us get married? How, how do any of us know what we're going to be like in 30 years? But you just meet these founders sometimes and you kind of fall in love with them and their idea. And you're like, I want to support you. And I believe that we're going to kind of be married for the next 10 years until this exits in one shape, one shape or form. And yeah, it's a leap of faith. Wow. And so what inspired you to start 37 Angels in the first place, like, it was about four years ago, right? Um, Correct. Because I don't know, and again, it might just be my ignorance, but of any other sort of like startup investing schools. Yeah. I don't know how you classify it, but um, like, is that a genre of thing and you started a new one or did you invent this whole concept? So... 
I think like a lot of founders, 37 Angels came out of a personal need. So I had been angel investing at that point for maybe five years, very kind of haphazardly, accidentally, um, just bumbling around in the space, frankly. How did you get into that in the first place? Accidentally. Um, so uh, one of my dearest friends was um, had already directed and produced a movie, but needed help with distribution. And I, it was a movie that promoted mental health awareness in the Asian American community, which is very important because for anybody who's Asian, you're just sad. You don't have depression. Like it just doesn't exist. And so I wanted more people to see this movie. So, okay, I said, I'll, I'll invest. And uh, all of a sudden I was an angel investor and people were sending me deals and I was had no idea what I was looking at, but wrote a couple checks. And so fast forward five years, realized that I had no idea what I was doing and um, set about to do two things. One, join an angel network so I could see more kind of consistent deal flow and two, learn. And it was really hard for me to learn. I did a lot of things like read and read blogs and um, go to all these different workshops and interviewed a bunch of investors. And over time, taught myself kind of the space and realized that this didn't exist. And so kind of put together this curriculum because that's what I do. I'm an educator first and foremost. And then on the angel network side, really didn't find an angel network that I felt like I wanted to be a part of. I walked into a lot of rooms of old white men um, and got asked questions literally like, are you lost? Because um, I didn't look like the typical angel investor. And But then I didn't want to only invest in female founders. So decided that I wanted to invest alongside women, but be able to invest in male and female founders, which is what 37 Angels is. And then I think it was also really important because when I was a founder, angel investors, and that it's a very um, fragmented industry, can be a little bit inefficient. Uh, the average angel investor takes 187 days to get back to a founder. Wow. And so we were going to be like the founder-friendly angel network. And so one thing that we do is we guarantee a decision from pitch to funding in four weeks or less. And then um, about 40 to 50% of our angels are former entrepreneurs. And so built the angel network that I would have wanted to pitch when I was a founder. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and so obviously the organization and the, the group of angels has grown like a lot. Um, and so when you think about it now, do you think of it as 37 Angels is like an entity or is it a collection of individual investors? Ultimately, it's both. Um, but, but I know that different angel networks sort of like think of themselves as just sort of this loose coll collection of, of folks or where, you know, it's essentially functioning like a fund. We, so I think what's important, like obviously efficiency is important to me. So I think from a process perspective, it's very important to us that the founders feel like they're dealing with an entity mm -hmm. because cat herding is no joke with angel investors, right? And having to send your deck to eight different investors or answer questions from 12 different investors, that is painful. Yeah. So I think from a process perspective, it's really important as an entity. I think also culturally, we try to have a very consistent experience, right? Transparent helpful, efficient, all those things. We, a lot of the training that we go through is actually about the culture of 37 Angels, not just the mechanics of how to invest in a startup. That being said, I think the one place where it's very much individual is subject matter expertise and post-investment activity, mm. right? So some of our angels just want to get a monthly investor report and some of our angels want to be on your board and really be actively engaged. I think that's where it differs. Yeah. It's funny that you sort of described your original sort of investment that made you into an angel investor, I, I would imagine you didn't know you were an angel investor. Oh, I had no, I didn't know what the term meant. You know, that's sort of how I feel about like 
becoming an entrepreneur. Like when we started Maz, I wasn't like, today I am an entrepreneur. <laughs> like it's just like, you know, yeah. at some points people started referring it me that way to me that way. And I was like, oh, is that what I am? Is that what this is? Um, and it's funny because today, like, for instance, dealing with some of the students um, at Columbia, it's like they say things like, I want to become an entrepreneur. Or I know that there are undergrad programs where you can major in entrepreneurship. Um, and I feel like that is a relatively new phenomenon compared to at least when I was in school. Agreed. Um, and even angel investing itself, of course, there have always been individual investors, but like the whole sort of culture of angel investing seems like something born in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years maybe. Um, and so does it make a difference if you sort of stumble into founding a company or into being an investor versus sort of setting out in advance to say, I don't know what I want to build or, or what I want to do, but I just want to be a this? Like, do you think those end up in different places? There's a lot of different ways to answer that. I, so here, you mentioned students. So one alarming trend that I see in students is the, I have no idea what I want to start student, but I know I want to be an entrepreneur student. Yes. That one worries me a lot, which yes. is, I think that they're doing it for the completely wrong reasons. And yeah, those are the, those are the founders that, again, they, they, they worry me, they concern me. Um, you know, a fun fact that I like to share is that 70% of startups are started while people have full-time jobs, right? Which I do think means it's a little bit more accidental, less intentional, more of like, hey, I have an idea. It's my side hustle on the weekend, whatever you want right. to call I'm it. solving the problem that I have, right? Exactly. And I think, um, I don't know if one's better or worse, but I do worry when it's, it's like, um, so I'll, so I'll share like a story about when I was a child, I really wanted to be a business person because I wanted to carry a briefcase and hold a latte. I don't know why, <laughs> but like that really excited eight-year-old Angela did of like, your I kind of did, although we, I'm more business casual these days, but like that was really exciting to me, right? Like, cause that was my, I must've watched some movie and like, that was my definition of success. And that was literally what I, like, I really just wanted to carry a latte and carry a briefcase. I wish I could have known you at yeah. eight years old. You're like watching <laughs> was, Wall Street and you're like, Michael Douglas, like, that's <laughs> me. You know, it's like... Right. And, I, and like, that's the wrong reason. Right. And so I feel like that's, that's sometimes I'm, I'm like, it's a, it's a stretch of an analogy, but I do feel like some people are like, I want to be a founder. And it's like for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. And, and I think nobody knows like year one's awesome. Year three of being a founder. It sucks. It's a slog <laughs> and it's tiring. And like nobody talks about that. Nobody. And you're like, oh man, I, I, can I get off the train for a bit? You can't get off the train for a bit. Like maybe you could take like a little vacation, but you're on the train. And yeah. uh, I, I just think that people don't realize that. Yeah, and you, you never really feel the relief that you imagine you will if you hire new people or if you achieve that next milestone because then there's just some other new, bigger exactly. thing. You know, so the you have different problems, but the but the ratio is like the same, you know? Yeah, definitely. Like I think a lot of corporate jobs, you'll have like a big account or a big event and then you're like, oh, like, like that thing happened and then you get to like kind of bask. There's none of that as a founder, to your yeah, point. It's like always... We're very bad at even just celebrating yeah. things, some, you know, exactly big account closes or a new feature release or something. Like we, we literally sometimes have to like drag ourselves away from our desk to like pour a glass of champagne. And then like 20 minutes later, someone's like, I, I need to be on a call. And like, you know, we're just yeah. so bad at celebrating. Agreed. Um, but right. If you start a company specifically because you just want to like 
pop champagne all day, you'll probably be yeah. sorely disappointed. Exactly. Um, but it's it doesn't mean that great businesses can't be started that way, I, I would imagine. It's just, I guess, sort of like a maybe a, a red flag or something. Like when you're evaluating a startup, is there some line of questioning, which is like, why are you the person to build this business? And as if someone pitches you and, and, they're, and you're like, man, this is like, a really great idea, great business, seems like the execution is good, there's a clear market. Does it, does it still matter why it's this founder or this founding team? Definitely, right? So we'll, we'll certainly look for things like subject matter expertise and domain expertise, but we do ask the question, like, why are you doing this, right? Yeah. And and you can, um, we actually wrote this in a diligence memo recently. It was a great startup idea, great founder, really smart team, and we wrote in the team thing, flight risk. Because we were just like, we don't think he's committed. He was, and I, I feel like I can make fun of MBAs because I am one. <laughs> um, you know, he was a you know freshly minted MBA, and it was a good business idea because there was clearly a market gap, but it felt almost like an intellectual exercise. Like, hey, there's this market gap, and I'm going to go after it. But I, we just were like, you know, I feel like the second it gets hard, you're you're out of here and onto the next quote unquote good idea. Now we don't know, like only time will tell. Uh, but we definitely wrote the words "flight risk" in the wow. memo. Yeah, like I mean, people ask me all the time, I have this idea for an app. Like, yeah. you know, what would what would it take to build this app? And what they're looking for is some sort of dollar amount. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know, five to ten years of your life. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like that's the answer yeah. in a hundred percent of cases. Right. Right. You know, like. Like, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, my daughter's only two years old, but like, you know, the, the sort of classic father of the line, like, what are your intentions with my daughter sort of thing? <laughs> yeah. Like, that's how I feel. It's like, well, what are your intentions with this right. app? If you just want to like fool around with this app, don't even bother because that there's no such thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you're just doing it for fun because you think it'll blow up overnight and you'll make a million dollars. Like none of those things are going to happen. Yeah. I so, love it when they're like, Oh, well I'm going to get on Oprah and that's how I'm going to be successful. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's right. not how that's, this works. Right. Oh, well I know someone that works at the today show. Yeah. I was like, okay, yeah, you'll get a nice spike. That was the lesson I learned. Um, you know, in, in a previous life I was pursuing a music career full time. I don't know if you even know that whole chapter. I do not know that. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll do some deep YouTubing later. Um, and my band actually had, um, a couple of music videos that got on like MTV and VH1 and like, wow. um, yeah, I mean, it was cool, but I always imagined that if you were on MTV, then that meant you were like hanging out on your yacht and, right. you know, um, and we just woke up the next day and we're like, well, that was cool. Like now what, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I feel like, like tech startups are very similar as there's no single event like that. Um, being on Oprah, whatever, that those things in culmination, right, in, in, in aggregate, can move the needle. But like, it's very rarely or never that there's like that single sort of event or there's, you know, the one line in your, your marketing strategy, which is like, call friend at Oprah, right, you right. know. Um, I, yeah, I think the, all of that stuff, you know, press, PR, there's like really kind of cool like things that happen to me. Those are the results of all the amazing things that you do. Those aren't the things that you shoot for, right? Because if you're doing all good things, that will happen. Yeah. But that's not the plan. That's yeah. just the result of having executed on a good plan. Right. Um, so with 37 Angels, you must think about this stuff all the time, but I feel like there's all this chatter, at least in my you know Twitter bubble, about... Um, sort of gender biases and, and 
you know, uh, differences in gender. There's this whole like Google manifesto thing. Um, but that's just sort of the latest in, you know, Silicon Valley and women and, um, you know, the sort of bro culture, the engineering culture. Uh, there's less that I've read about like investor culture in general, although it's obvious to the naked eye um, that it's a very male dominated world. Um, and so you started 37 Angels basically again to solve this problem for yourself, but you must also sort of have this mission uh, in identifying other people that are like you or like how you were at that time and trying to sort of help them become part of uh, this network and to be educated and to sort of, you know, funnel more female investors into the pool. Um, I always, it, I don't know if you want to call it affirmative action or whatever, but like it, it almost seems like a shame that that needs to happen at all. Um, and so I'm sure you get asked a lot of annoying questions around this topic. Um, and I want to avoid those sorts of questions, but but how do you sort of think about it and how do you talk about it within 37 Angels? Like on one hand, there is the importance of specifically trying to get more women into the world of startup investing. And then on the other hand, there is the ultimate mission of that shouldn't even be a conversation you need to have. So how do you sort of balance those two on any yeah, given day? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so... Uh, I'll answer it from a couple different ways. One is from a kind of education perspective. I think a question I do get asked a lot is like, how do you teach women how to invest and how is that content different than how you would teach men to invest? And what I always say is the curriculum that I teach at 37 Angels is the exact same course I teach at Columbia Business School to a room of 70% men. So the content is exactly the same. So I think that is not where we would differ. And I think I'm a relatively practical person. And for me, what we know that the data shows, you know, from Malcolm Gladwell, lots and lots of research, that once a group is, hits about like that 30% kind of inflection point, they are no longer the minority. And then their, you know, behaviors or their tendencies, whatever the case may be, that kind of then bleeds into the common behaviors of the group. And so I don't spend a lot of time lamenting bro culture or 7% venture capitalists or 4% of venture capital money going to women. Like I don't spend a lot of time lamenting that. I think, well, what can I do? I can close a gender gap on the investor side. And I think we know by having more women in the room, more um, female founders will get funded and more diverse ideas will get funded. And that is what the data shows us. And so I think what frustrates me sometimes about the feminist movement is just, I think there's a lot of time wasted on dialogue that isn't moving the needle. And so I try to think about, well, where can I actually have impact? Right. It's, it's about sort of skipping the conversation and just being action-oriented. Which I think frustrates a lot of people, right? And I, and I, and I also like, like anger is another topic that like I, I sometimes talk about. This happens a lot in my leadership class because not surprisingly, gender dynamics come up all the time in that course. And I go back and forth on like what the... I guess, purpose of anger is, right? Because for some people, it'll galvanize you to action, in which case it's great. But some people will stew in a room and just be pissed. And, and so it's interesting because anger, when channeled productively, can be a great thing. But it can also be an incredibly disruptive and wasteful um, yeah. kind of emotion to have. And so I, I, I kind of go back and forth on that. But I do think there's, there's just too much. It's such an emotionally loaded topic. And I think all of us need to be thinking more about the solution. So, for example, helping female founders. There are, I don't know, 
a dozen events every night focused on female founders and talking about like how to pitch or how to do this, how to do that. And I'm like, so teach, like what are really specific skills that will lead to revenue, right? So introduce them to revenue generating clients. You know, let's teach negotiation strategies, sales strategies, whatever the case may be, but let's not talk about the problem, let's fix the problem. Right, right. Less kumbaya and more like, yeah. here's what we can do. Um, by the way, for anyone that wants a list of all those events and a million other awesome events, the 37 Angels newsletter, I got to plug it. Um, Thank you, Paul. I think it's by far the most comprehensive like list of tech-related events that I've found hmm. um, and that are like good, you know. Uh, they they seem highly curated. Out. It's not just like, so, here's every event happening. It's like, here are the ones that are actually good. We do go for more of a curated approach, but the comprehensive view is really helpful in which case i would plug gary's guide yes and Charlie that's Donald's to guide. me Those that are is like the unfiltered very, but there's a, a place for that as well yeah totally yeah. um and it's funny because you know i i go to less of these events for better or worse as time goes on but i like even just reading about them and 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 getting just an idea of like where the pulse is you yeah. know, because you can I was going to use the word zeitgeist. <laughs> Ooh, that's better. Um, right. It's like, oh, I guess like, you know, AR is a thing people are talking yeah. about because look at all these events, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a really great resource. And it's one piece of advice I give to all sort of very early stage founders or sort of pre-founders, you know, um, when they're talking about like, what are those first steps? It's just like, get out in the world. Go to totally those things. Great mingle with the people over the stale pizza, like do whatever you have to do to just start the dialogue um, and and talk about your ideas and hear other people's ideas and just sort of like, you know, feel the energy. Um, totally because a agree. lot of people just sort of like do it in their homes by themselves that are afraid to talk about their precious yeah. idea or whatever. And it's like... One thing I'm glad to see going away is the stealth startup. Drives oh me God. bonkers when I see it on a LinkedIn profile. I'm working a stealth startup. Talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I had um, our mutual friend Brian Scordato mm-hmm. on a few episodes ago, and, and he was talking about this whole idea. Um, he, I think he calls it like a whisper idea, which is when someone's like, you're like, so what's the idea? And I'm like, okay. Like, and they like sort of <laughs> lean in, you know, like, don't tell anyone. But right. And he just thinks that's like so ridiculous. And, and we were having this conversation. It's like, right, you're at a cafe. And like, what do you act? What do you think is going to happen? Like, the barista is going to be like, right. that is a great idea. Like, I'm going to stop my life and and I'm going to quit Starbucks today and start your idea. And exactly. Like, and again, spend the next five ten years doing that. Like, that's just not that's not going to happen. One of um, so I often say that I've had four startups, but the reality is I've had like sixteen. Um, one of them <laughs> was called Dewey D, and it was basically Goodreads before Goodreads, right? Pandora Ooh. for books. Yeah. And that is a great idea, right? A book recommendation engine, of course. Yes. And But what did we do? We played around with the algorithm for a couple months. We got really excited about the character Dewey D, and we drew a bunch of iterations of oh Dewey. God, what a name. Right? Like, and we have a guy named Dewey that works for, mass, for those of you who are, you know, you know, pre-born, like, too recently, don't remember the Dewey Decimal System, you know? Like, I used to have to go look at card catalogs when I was uh, in the library. Anyway, but, like, we went about it all wrong, right? And that was just an idea that we were tinkering with. That wasn't a startup. And so I, but to the point, we were really scared to talk about it. We're like, oh, this is such a good idea. It was right. a good idea, but that's not where the value no, is. You can go and yell that from the rooftops. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Um, and we did not invent it, but we really thought we did. <laughs> so what were some of the other startups, either the four or the remaining 12, like Dewey D, um, that 
you think either you learned the most from or, or were the most successful by whatever metric you think is most meaningful? Because obviously those led to, um, in other words, 37 Angels is a startup, but it's like a meta startup that invests in startups. Um, and so I would imagine that you are a particularly empathetic investor having been on the other side of that. Um, but if I remember correctly, you didn't actually raise money, or at least not for all of those companies, right? That's right. So um, for three of the ones that I count, um, I bootstrapped, right? And they were, uh, I'm going to use air quotes, lifestyle companies, which is so funny because that term didn't exist oh. in 1999 when I turned on my first what a, startup. What a dirty word. It Don't bring your lifestyle business into my right. pitch event. You know. and, and I felt, and I, and I it's interesting. I've, I spent a f- several years feeling almost like uh, inferior because I had these lifestyle companies, which, by the way, made money. Did you right? know that they were that? Or just okay. to back up for a second, to yeah. define a lifestyle business is basically, I don't know how you define it, but I just think of it as like a business. Like yeah, not like a, a small business, right? So you right. Not don't the sort need... of business that's going to be Uber, right? but but anything short of that, like it's a pretty big umbrella, the lifestyle business right. world. But it's just not going to have that hockey stick type growth. Right. And typically you're not raising venture capital or angel funding, right? So we, the way that we funded it was shockingly through revenue, right? Which people like forget is a source what of funding. That? I know. Yeah. We um, paid for operations through revenue, right? Like that, that's how we grew. Um, but in just high over the first company was a technical consulting company. This was the late 90s when money was falling from the sky. And we um, helped companies find C++ programmers and DB. Uh, database administrators. Uh, Second company was a um, career compass, helped college juniors and seniors figure out what they wanted to be when they grew up, uh, full circle. And then uh, the third company was a corporate trading company that exists today. And then the fourth is 37 Angels. Wow. So there's definitely a through line there, I would say, around education. Education. Right. Because I mean, consulting is also, you know, education, um, helping people figure out what they want to do. Right. So that seems to be the theme. And I know that you you specifically look at like ed tech as sort of a vertical that that you are, are I like this space and about. obviously given what I do at Columbia, it's um, although I actually think it's it's hard to be an investor in a space you know incredibly well That's because you know all the reasons why things fail, right? And so you know all the terrible vendors that you've worked with or you it's just it's there can be, I think I think I actually look at EdTech more critically than I look at any other vertical because I know it maybe too well. Do you think that's true of founders too? That it's like easier to start a business in an industry that you actually don't know that well because you're like naive enough to to do it? And whereas if it was something you knew super, you know, intimately that you might basically like anticipate those pitfalls and and I don't know. I think it's actually good to have someone on the founding team. Like, I think I, I do think that domain expertise is important, right? But I think it's nice to have somebody on the founding team or like advisory board who really is coming in from the outside just to have that really fresh perspective. I just met the founders of Harper Wild, which is a bra company, and they did I don't know how many informational interviews with people, and they and apparently bras are really hard to manufacture. Who knew? Yes, they are. I know. Why do you know this? <laughs> okay, well, I feel like I need to interject quickly, but my wife is actually starting a bra company okay. specifically for new moms like nursing and pumping bras that are like modern and don't look matronly right. and weird so we should talk fair maybe enough. I'll, I'll connect her but anyway they're like literally in the prototyping phase dealing with these manufacturers and yeah they're they're hard to um 
you know, if you pick up a bra, you're just sort of like, okay, like, I don't know anything about apparel, but like, I could imagine how you construct right. this, but the sizing is super exactly. difficult. Like there's, there's a lot of nuance compared to other sorts of clothing. And so every person said, don't go into the space, right? But because I think they came from the outside, they came at it from a very innovative way. And so I think it's good to have that expertise and to listen to it, but then also have somebody who can kind of come at it from the outside. And I think that balance is good in a founding team. That's pretty interesting. So you, I, I don't want to backtrack, but the, I was just thinking about what you said about anger. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of a funny topic because people don't generally like reflect on anger. Yeah. Um, as a tool, which is sort of how you're bringing it up. And there's the fact that it comes up in your leadership classes or that you're thinking about it in terms of, um, you know, or in the context of this idea of like getting angry about the lack of, you know, female representation in the VC community or something. Um, I mean, I almost think of anger as a great catalyst, but then to continue to feel angry is like to be redundant. I agree. Like feeling angry up front is great because it like alerts you to something that obviously you feel passionate about. But then, you know, and and so when you think about that in the context of running a company um, or in the context, I don't know how much anger plays into investing, um, but also just this idea of sort of like emotion or um in a broader sense i guess like trusting one's gut or intuition um i feel like those are the the and i do think of them as skills or at least mastering those things are skills it's something that people don't talk a lot about in in the world of business or at least um from what i can tell but again at the early stage investing in the early stage investing world a lot of it must be that sort of visceral type, like, yeah, you're looking at the spreadsheets and you see the projections and they have some early traction and they have a deck, but like, you know, you don't have like the real hard data. So probably, hopefully not anger in most cases, but there must be something else, some other sort of something that you're intuiting about. about. Yeah. So um, there's actually really great research done around memory and people have talked about um, the U curve of memory in terms of like, how do you think about, if you think about TED Talks, right, and how they do that process. And what happens is the first five or 10 times you try to memorize, and by the way, there's a reason why I'm using this. Um, the first kind of five or 10 times you try to memorize a speech, you're actually terrible at it. And people can tell you're memorizing and thinking about the next word. And then you kind of get through this inflection point, And then all of a sudden you've memorized it so well that you're much more going off of like, okay, this paragraph is supposed to say this or this. And you've, got the words down so that you can then actually be a little bit more flexible within the script. And I think that investing is very similar to that, which is I think in the beginning you have to, and this is what we teach in the bootcamp, all of those frameworks. So if we think about diligence, there's a scorecard method, or sorry, valuation, right? There's a scorecard method, there's the dilution method, there's a venture capital method, there's all these ways to value a company, which are very mechanical, right? And there are things that you can put into a spreadsheet and you can give yourself this like false sense of confidence. And I think it's really, really important to know those things so that you can later abandon them, right? And I think that that is what being an angel investor is. It's like you have to learn those mechanics in the beginning. We also have the four Ps of what we look for, right? People, problem, progress, and price. And we have a little checklist for all those different things. And I think it's important in the beginning to know that, right? And go through those mechanics. But then 
over time you do kind of abandon them and you do start to trust your gut. And there is this like, I really do liken it to like dating, right? You just, you just fall in love with some founders and you're like, I believe that they're going to be the ones to win in this space, even though I heard nine other pitches doing the exact same thing. And then do you find that you sort of justify that gut feeling with the four P's? Like, do you, do you have to make a case for yourself or, 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 you know, do you become enlightened enough that you say, I, I know that I feel this way and that's, evidence enough. So here's what the four P's does for me is every founder is like every human is flawed, right? Every startup has something. And then the question for me is always like, is that fixable? And am I able to help them fix that? And if the answer is, so like something that I think is not fixable, for example, is if you are doing something in like the healthcare space and it involves like payers, like insurance companies, and you just like don't know that space. I I do think that is something that's like hard to bring in a board of advisors for, right? And there are just certain things where I feel like you have to, like if your company is mining social media information to talk about brand sentiment, which is like, what do people think about Ford or Volvo or Donald Trump, right? <laughs> like, and you don't have a data scientist on your team, like that would concern me. So there are some things that like you can't fix, but there are some problems that are very fixable. So for example, like a terrible website will turn a lot of investors off. That is actually a very fixable problem so long as the founders acknowledge it. If they, right. if they think their website's beautiful, that's a problem. But if they're like, yes, we threw up this website in a weekend just to start like testing and we totally recognize we need to do a total overhaul, that is such an easy problem to fix. Right. So I think that the like you fall in love and then it's like, okay, well, what is fixable here? And then ideally, can I actually help them fix that problem? Yeah. The second piece is super interesting because it's not just identifying some sort of risk, but but it's like a self-fulfilling thing. In other words, if you invest and become involved with this company, that risk will be mitigated. And so, yeah, so hopefully. right. Yeah. Or, or at least has the potential to um, instead of just like this is the risk. So I'm going to roll the dice on that risk. You're actually saying like, I could actually somehow impact this risk right. in a way that if I don't invest, actually this company is worse off. And that is the sort of symbiosis that investors and startups try to achieve in all cases. Um, but I think it's hard. In other words, this whole idea of like smart money versus dumb yeah. money or adding value or whatever. And it always annoys me. And I read these like posts from these founders that are like, you know, I don't know, we had, you know, 10 term sheets. So we decided to choose the one that, you know, was going to bring the most value to us. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. But like, I've never met a single founder that was in that position. Right. Um, and so, but at the same time, I do think that, especially for more experienced founders, you start to think more about like, okay, well, what is, what is this person or what is this, um, this group of people or this, this company or whatever bringing besides just the cash. Yep. And and if you have someone that says, I know our website sucks, and then you're like, oh, well, we're really good at fixing websites, just as an example, yep. then that's like a pretty good match, you know? Yeah. Although I to me, it's much more important that they're self-aware that their website sucks and much less important that they specifically need my help. It's That's like a bonus I if see. I happen to be able to help. But we much more look for fixable problems where the founders are self-aware of it. Well, I feel like there's always that slide in the deck. And if not, there's always the question, which is like, who are the competitors? Yeah. What are the weaknesses? What would um, what would make this not work? You know, ha like yeah. playing devil's advocate yourself. And it, it always feels a little bit like a trap, like the same way when you're interviewing someone, you're like, what are your weaknesses? Yeah. And like, if you tell them your real weaknesses, they won't hire you. You're like, um, I don't shower. And <laughs> I, you know, it's like, so you have to like say something that sounds genuine, but then 
makes you sound good. So it's like, well, sometimes I'm just too diligent, you know, it's like, um, and so like, what do you, what do you actually want from a founder when, when you ask that question? Yeah. So the, I don't think most investors are looking for the, we are a hundred percent able to defend against all competition. I don't think that's realistic, but what I am looking for is a realistic picture of the competitive landscape. And I think the biggest mistake that founders make is they only talk about their very direct competitors. Here are the three startups doing exactly what we're doing, right? Which is custom made bras, right? Versus like here are the 8,000 ways that people can buy bras, right? And so I think it's really important for founders to have a realistic view of their indirect competitors, of suppliers who could become competitors, of really big companies who could add a feature to LinkedIn and put them out of business. And it's not about saying like we can defend against all this, but it's just like I have an understanding of the competitive landscape. I know where the biggest risks are. And here's how I think we're going to react to some of those. And that's all we're really looking for. So it, it all just sort of sounds like self-awareness. Yeah, a lot of it. You know, um, because I guess if someone is self-aware enough to know all that, but they're pursuing it anyway, mm-hmm. unless they're just insane, um, that must give you some confidence. Like, okay, this person actually like has laid out all these competitors, all of these risks, all these sort of potential pitfalls, and they believe themselves that they could still build a, a meaningful company despite all that. So that must give you some confidence where if someone just comes in and says like, oh yeah, I don't really know any of that. Right. You know. Um, or they know it and they try to hide it, which is not great either. Oh, I mean, that's interesting. I'm a fan of, you know, I'm a little biased. I, I am a recovering management consultant, right? And so I'm a, I am a big fan of like the case interview, which is much, much less about what the answer is, but just like how your brain works. So like asking a couple of questions, which is what would you do if Pinterest did X? What would you do? And like, I shouldn't be the first person to pose that question to them. Really? Their I've brain, sh- I know, their brain before. should be like, oh, and then they should be like, you know, we thought about that. You know, this is probably how we'd react. Right? Like they should just have thought about it. And so I think it's much more around like, are they able to identify risks? And then do they have logical responses? And so we're not going to hold them to it. But a lot of diligence, it's much less about the spreadsheet, especially early stage. It's much more about having a conversation with the founder and being like, do I trust them? Do I like the way their brain work? Do I believe that they're going to make logical next steps? And I, I think it's really hard for founders, frankly, because people love to use this word like coachability, right? We want coachable founders. And we do, but it's this line, right? It's like coachable yet still discerning. <clears throat> which is I don't want a founder who every time I have an idea, they're like, that's a great idea. I'm going to add that feature. Yeah. But then I don't want an, uh, also a founder who's going to be completely defensive. And so this is like balancing act of coachable yet discerning. Yeah. I mean, I experienced this to a much lesser degree, but when I am helping early stage founders or, or even some of the students that want to meet for coffee to tell me about their idea or whatever. And, and I can tell that everything I'm saying they're like writing down. And as soon as our meeting's over, they're going to go and call their co-founder and change yeah. everything. And I almost find myself being like, by the way, like, don't listen to everything I'm saying. Right. Literally, like, you should take what I'm saying and what like a hundred other people tell you and sort of, you know, compile all that together and then right. weigh that against your own, you know, uh, beliefs. And and then, you know, because I, I remember those early days too. every single investor meeting, I would come back, call Simon and Chica and be like, we have to change this. And then like <laughs> literally that afternoon, I'd have another meeting and right. I'd call them back and tell them the exact opposite. Yep. You know, um, so I think that's common probably at the beginning. Yeah. And here's a secret. Investors do not have any idea either, right? Like, and I think, I mean, there's this weird power dynamic, which is so false, right? That investors somehow like have this crystal ball 
No, you, you've been thinking about your startup for the last year, right? You've been immersed in this space. Like, trust your gut a little bit. And we're just kind of... You know way more than I yeah. know about this topic or exactly. about this idea yeah. or whatever. I'm just hearing about it for the very first time. And in some ways, you can get it. that fresh pair of eyes is good. Yeah. But like, right, you're, you're going on a very limited set of right. data, for instance. Right. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you, and, and you just touched on it, but it's like this idea that founders imagine that investors know things, <laughs> um, know anything. But like the whole idea of investors and especially angel investors as opposed to VCs, VCs is like a company. So you think of it as like the company or even 37 angels, you think of it. But we're talking about individual investors, like who are these people? And as what, what is it is when you actually meet an angel investor, they sure seem just like a human being um, who, you know, again, doesn't have a crystal ball and doesn't necessarily know more even than you about this. And so, you know, obviously, I don't know if you can generalize, but like, who are the members of 37 Angels? Like, like, how does one just wake up one morning and say, you know what, I want to start investing in startups? I mean, are all these people multimillionaires? Like, like, you know, what does it mean to be an early stage angel investor? So let's start with just kind of like some nuts and bolts stuff. So the uh, SEC, this Security and Exchange Commission, defines an angel investor as being accredited, which means that they either have a million dollars in investable assets or they're making over $200,000 a year. So that's the bar. Um, And so that's all it takes to be quote unquote qualified to be an angel investor Mm -hmm. is that you made 200K last year. Um, So that's one. And then I do know that about 85% of angel investors have a day job, right? So most of us are not doing this full time. And so that means that we're, you know, hearing a few pitches, you know, a month, whatever the case may be. Um, I th- and there's what, 300,000 angel investors in the U.S. right now, I think is, just, is the statistic. Wow. Um, and all that means is that you've written one check in your life, right? And so that was me for the first five years. I think I wrote did I write three or four checks in five years, right? So like less than one a year. I don't, and I never called myself an angel investor, right? I was just somebody who occasionally looked at startup pitches and occasionally wrote a probably incredibly stupidly written check. Um, (laughs) So that's kind of, so I would say, if you are thinking about kind of vetting angel investors, like I would just ask them like, you know, how often do you do this? Just get a sense. Um, And then... If you are looking at like an angel network or a group of angels, talk to their portfolio companies, right? And ask them, what's it like? Are they really annoying? Do they email you every three weeks and ask for an update? Um, are they, you know, aggressively helpful, which sometimes angel investors are? Do they ignore your emails? Like whatever the case may be, right? And that would be one way that I would do the diligence. I don't know that I'm answering your question very well. Um, <laughs> I think you are. No, I mean, again, I, I think when people think about investors, they really do think about, you know, th- that person in a suit with the briefcase and the latte. Yeah. And that's those aren't the investors that I meet or the investors that, that we have or certainly the other amazing people I've met through 37 Angels. So where's the disconnect? Like why, why do people imagine one thing and the reality is just, you know? I mean, I do think that there's the like recreational angel investors and then there are the people who are doing it 
more seriously. And to me, more seriously is they are part of a group or they're really doing it regularly because then they've got some skin in the game, right? To be a member in most of these networks, it costs you three, $5,000 a year to be a part of that network. So they have some skin in the game, which means that they have intention to invest. And by the way, there are several questions we ask in our interviews because we interview every angel who wants to be a part of our network. But that is one big thing that we are looking for is intention to invest because there's a lot of these... Um, like spectator angels, people love going to pitches and like listening and it's oh so fun, but then they won't ever open up their checkbook, right? Because it is incredibly risky. And so I think we've gotten better over the years of figuring out like, do you just want to come hang out or are you really prepared to invest like in Like the other founders? side of, you know, we talked a little bit about sort of the entrepreneur. Yeah. It's like the it is. want investor, like the, you know, the person that, right, isn't actually pursuing this, but sort of loves the whole scene. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a a not insignificant amount of that. So I if I were a founder approaching angel investors, I would want to know like, you know, just tell me about your portfolio or you know, tell me the types of companies that you invest in and they should have some sort of idea. Right. And you can kind of tell when you're like, "Oh, you just you're just here to hang out." <laughs> right. Exactly. I just read in the Wall Street Journal that apps were important and yeah, you exactly. know, my buddy introduced me to you and and the thing is sometimes that's okay. I mean, from the other side, I mean in our early days like we just needed cash yeah i mean so i couldn't care less over the first startup you ever invested in or the hundredth you know um and so on the flip side sometimes it really is just a matchmaking thing like this yeah. company needs some capital and you have capital to give you know and i'm actually okay with the newbie investor what concerns me is the quote-unquote investor that never invests and I they see. take three meetings and I a waste see. of founders time because they think it's fun right. but they have no intention right. of and, ever and, investing in anybody well maybe they have the intention but but yeah. obviously not enough to actually do it right, right you know like like they're deluding themselves as exactly. well um yeah that's that's super interesting and do you think that an investor needs to make a certain amount of investments to make, because the whole model is that you have this portfolio and a lot of them will not succeed, but some of them will like to, to have any sort of actual like financial gain. I would imagine there's some sort of rough formula that you need to invest a certain amount of money over a certain amount of startups, like diversifying that. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at any chart, it, the graph very, very clearly shows that the more companies you invest in, the better you do. So diversification very much works. Um, and so I would tell anybody who's thinking about being an angel investor, unless you're prepared to write 10 checks, I wouldn't get into the space. And 10 is very much the low bar. I think 25 wow. is a much better number to Over shoot for. Over what period of time do you imagine? Now, I, I would say don't invest in more than like three to maybe five companies a year, right? Because then you're just kind of writing a check every time you see a company. Sure. And by the way, there's lots of ways to do this, right? So I'm personally invested in, I think, 16 companies, but I'm in two funds. And funds are a great way to get diversification. Um, and then there's equity crowdfunding these days where you don't have to invest. So in the states, in the major cities, typically you have to invest $25,000 into a startup. Most founders won't take less than that. Um, and to write $10,000, $25,000 checks can get very expensive. Yeah. But crowdfunding allows you to write a $1,000 check. Now, the downside is they'll take a percentage off the top. They might take 15 20% off the top to allow you to do that, but you do get that that, that diversification. Interesting. Interesting. The, these, I mean, this stuff, I think, is really truly hidden to the average I agree. person and even the average founder. You know, like we don't really know what is happening on the other side uh, as far as the people that that are, you know, living sort of on the other side of the mirror, which is 
the investors um, and really what's motivating them and how do they think about it. And, you know, for me, for instance, I'm all in on Maz. I'm not diversified at all. Yeah. You know, um, but to our investors, we are one in a, a portfolio in a group yeah. of startups and you are sort of looking at it on the whole, you know, whereas I am only looking at my one little piece because for me, that's all that matters. Yep. But to an investor, you're part of like a larger story, you know? Yeah. So we actually haven't talked that much about Columbia Business School, um, which, you know, I, I recently uh, joined the ranks of and I'm really enjoying my time there. Mostly just loving talking to the students, yeah. you know, um, and there's such an energy and optimism and enthusiasm. And I don't know, it's just, uh, I just love teaching. And, and that's one of those things where people are always like, how do you, after a whole day of work, you know, like go and teach a four hour class at night? And it's like, I don't know, it's just really energizing. I actually come home and I'm like all jacked up on the adrenaline, you know? Um, but one interesting thing uh, is noticing how many of these students are interested in careers in tech, but most of them are not techie. They're generally not developers. They're not designers. Um, and so when you think about sort of the future of business and business type jobs, I mean, more and more industries are becoming tech centric. So it's not like necessarily going and working at, at Facebook, like there's tech sort of all over the place. Um, but how do you think about, you know, not just as it pertains to CVS, but like, you know, but MBA students are an interesting sort of case study and more largely about people that maybe traditionally were getting into um, really like business business as opposed to tech business, you know? I think that the idea that there is this like tech industry is, as we all know, very much going away, right? Every company is if not truly a tech company, enabled by technology. And so I do think much like 20 years ago, Excel was just something you had to know. I think these days, technical skills are something you have to know, right? So we have a um, couple of great courses at Columbia. Paul, you teach one of them um, on user experience and product management. Another course is digital literacy, right? And the idea is just how do you be technically literate enough to hire a programmer or to know which dev shop is the one to pick? I remember my second startup, we went through four development shops to find the person who was going to build our, our platform and just how much time we wasted because I didn't know how to write a proper um, use case. Yeah, I say this all the time. Like, how do you even know how to hire somebody, how to right. vet somebody? Take Paul Canetti's course, right? Because <laughs> I didn't know any of those things. Um, so I, I think it's really important, right? So for people who aren't at Columbia, right, there's TechSpeak, for entrepreneurs, it's a weekend course where you can learn some of these things. Um, General Assembly has some stuff. I, I want to say they have a course called like Programming for Non-Programmers. Yeah. Like, I don't think everyone has to be a coder, but I think that you have to be like technically literate these days because that's just the future of the world. And whether even if it's just picking up a book and so you know what is an API, what does a front-end developer mean versus a back-end developer, all these little things, because if you don't understand those at all, I do think you will have a hard time going forward. Yeah, and I think that those sorts of topics for a lot of people, you know, like when when you're at a party or, or something and people start talking about a topic you don't really know about. Like yeah. for me, it's like real estate interest rates. And I just sort of <laughs> hear this buzzing, like, right. you know, and I'm like, I can't really participate in this conversation. I feel uncomfortable. Um, I feel like a lot of people feel that way about tech. As soon as you start talking about front end, back end, server side, client side, like, you know, um, it has nothing to do with actually writing code. It's just sort of understanding 
the basics of how yep. tech works. Um, and I think, you know, for instance, with my class with product management, product management is a really interesting role that I think sort of takes the best of the tech and product side and mixes it with the intentionality of understanding business, yeah, you know, um, and that more and more it seems like uh, the two are integrating in a, in a more real way. And it's less about like building the product over here on one side and then, you know, on the other side of the house is marketing and sales and, and business and like, you know, whatever pops out of the product side, then you just try to market it. But instead of thinking of, of them sort of holistically from the beginning. Um, and so what would be like the number one, I don't know, piece of advice that you would give someone who is not technical and not really looking to start a tech company, but somehow wants to be involved in the world of tech, whether or not that the whole idea of the quote unquote, the tech industry is an illusion or not. Yeah. Like what should that person do? So I think you gave a great piece of advice earlier, which is just going to, I, I like metrics and giving yourself right. So like I'm a big introvert and when I network, I'm like, okay, you can't go home and go to bed until you've gotten two business cards. Right. And so maybe it's, you have to go to two events a week and one of them has to be with a room full of technical people. Cause there is a little bit of absorption by osmosis. I think that's one. And then I think the other thing, bringing it a little bit full circle is just being more honest that like nobody knows what they're doing, right? And I think people throw out all these terms all the time and they think they know, but you don't really. So I think all of us need to be a little bit more comfortable with asking, can you explain what that term means? And I'll bet you 70% of the time that person's not going to be able to explain it to you. And then guess what? You can go learn together. Go yeah. onto Wikipedia, right? Name then. some acronym and they don't even exactly. know Exactly. And I, I think um, I am somebody who... So I'll, maybe this is not a great example to bring up. I realized I didn't know that much about Benghazi. And so I went onto YouTube and Vlog Brothers, which is uh, Hank and forgetting his other name, the guy who wrote The Fault in Our Stars. Anyway, okay, yeah, they're yeah. these two both. They're these really great, like, eight-minute educational podcasts. And I learned cool. all this stuff about Benghazi. That, I mean, it's a terrible topic to bring up, but I'm no, but much more informed. And I think all of us have this, like, fear of, like, letting people know that we don't know. And I think all of us just need to be a little bit more comfortable of being like, I don't understand what you just said. Can you please explain it to me? So I should just go on, like, a Wikipedia rabbit hole about real estate interest rates tonight. Um, maybe talk to somebody who knows the space well and they can recommend a resource for you, right? Because I think there's, a, unfortunately, a ton of terrible content out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, But finding a couple of trusted sources. And that's why I think it's good to talk to people, right? Because, um, you know, what? I could I could probably give you a good resource, or if not me, Karen Efron, who knows the space really well, right. right? And that might save you a lot of time. But I think if you don't ask the question and you do spend hours in an, in an internet hole, that's probably not a great use of your time. Yeah, it, it's so funny because... I, there are real experts in the world, but I feel like a lot of times you encounter someone that relative to you is an expert, but they're only ahead by like a couple of Benghazi podcasts. Exactly. You know, um, and as soon as you start to realize that the delta between you and that quote unquote expert is not really very big at all, and you could just be them if you invest a little bit of time and energy and, and find those resources, um, and then there's, you know, a big gap between them and someone that, you know, yeah, works in the State Department. Yeah, but it starts with, like, acknowledging that gap. And, yeah. and it's, it's okay, right? Like, to say, I don't understand. I, I think you should write this book. I can see it <laughs> right now. No one knows anything. Yeah, no one has any idea what they're doing. Yes, no one has, no, right, no one has any idea what they're doing uh, by Angela Lee. I love it. Great. <laughs> I think you should do it. Awesome. Let's, let's see if the domain's available right now. 
I'll search um, it. How can people get in touch with you? What's the best way to follow you or 37 Angels online? So the website is 37 Angels, nice and simple. And our Twitter handle is 37 Angels NY, like New York. And the new website, live next week. Nobody knows, Nobody knows what they're, what doing. they're doing. Dot com. com. <laughs> Thanks so much, Angela. Thank you so Bye. much for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, I highly recommend that you subscribe and pass it on to your friends. If you're interested in learning more about 37 Angels, check out 37angels.com, 37angels.com, and uh, I'll see you next time.